Welcome to Sci Section. My name is Timur Bigaliev, and I'm the journalist for the Sci Section radio show broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Ennio Sipani. Sipani is a psychologist who made house calls. He's a retired behavioral psychologist that gave training to parents and teachers in their homes. He compiled what he learned about human behavior into a book, which is taught in universities across the United States and Canada. The book, called Functional Behavioral Assessment, Diagnosis and Treatment, was ranked the number one in the 10 best behavioral psychology books by Wiki S. Vid in 2018 and in 2020. Thank you, Dr. Sipani, for coming on today. Thank you. Uh, let me just divulge just a minute. Uh, you mentioned a psychologist who makes house calls and people are probably going, what is that? Um, when I came to California in 1981, they had a service called Behavioral Intervention Service for people who have developmental disabilities and have significant problem behaviors that were hurting their mainstreaming efforts. In other words, they would be put in the community and they would do behaviors that many times would put them back in an institution. So this service said, well, let's take these behaviorally oriented psychologists and actually send them out to the referral. And what they would do is they would actually on site, it's called the in vivo model, they would actually on site look at the problem as opposed to having the person come to your office and explain that. And the person we would deal with is the care provider, parent, adult, et cetera. Okay. So we would actually see firsthand what goes on when the problem would occur. And then instead of providing didactic instruction in, a, in an office, the behavioral management personnel would then say, okay, we're going to do this when this problem occurs. And I'm actually going to be here helping you do that. So it's like on the site coaching, I would be there and say, well, okay, remember, remember we talked about this. You don't want to do that. You want to do this. So across 45 minute session or an hour, we would get the adult to learn better how to respond as in a prescription to the behavior or behaviors the individual would perform. So unlike you know traditional psychologists where everything is done in their office, we do things in real time at site, uh, in vivo. So we get to see the battleground. And if people are interested in reading about this, I have a book called Punishment on Trial, which is free. If you look up my last, you know, Google search that Punishment on Trial, and put C-I-P-A-N-I in the search box, you'll see a number of entries and just click on one of the ones that gives it the PDF for free and you can read about it. So I have personally read your book, Functional Behavioral Assessment, Diagnosis and Treatment. And one thing that stood out to me was that you wrote about a lot of crazy case studies. Can you tell us more about the case featured in the title of our interview? Somewhat interesting, I would imagine, to most people. Uh, we're going to talk about some girl running nuke down the street. What is that about? Um, this is actually not a case that I was involved with, but my co-author, Kevin Schock, of my first two editions of the textbook you mentioned, was. Um, he was the consultant. So he was called by a, I guess it's a group home facility that you know his company was involved with in terms of providing behavioral consultation. And they said, yeah, this adolescent female at least twice a week runs out of the house nude and we have to chase her down the street, you know, and uh, try to get her back. And as you could imagine, it creates a significant management problem because in addition to, you know, the actual problem of trying to get her back in the home, the neighbors probably weren't thrilled to have an adolescent female running around nude. 
So the, I mean, I believe, I'm not sure of this, but I think the police were called once before in regards to this problem. So Kevin was faced with a uh, somewhat insurmountable problem of you have to get this to stop. All right. So when people would look at that, you would say, well, obviously she's doing it for attention, right? Attention from the staff that have to chase her or attention from the neighbors, et cetera. Um, but that didn't seem to be the case because Kevin asked them, well, you know, do you, does, is she uh, getting attention through common methods? Like, you know, is, hey, I need some help or can you come over here? And the answer was yes, she does. Okay. So th this is a facsimile of what Kevin actually said was, well, okay. Uh, and, and this is the astute part of what Kevin did, uh, just brilliant in terms of his behavior analytic skills. He asked the staff, he said, well, Boy, that's that's a pretty tough situation having a nude female, you know, out on the out on the street. How do you bribe her back? And he used the word bribe, but we would use the term. You know, how do you get her back? Right? But how do you bribe her to come back? And they said, "Well, we have to offer her a soda when she gets back in the house." You know, wouldn't that strike everybody as funny? Like <laughs> she has to, you know, run out nude to get a soda. So here's an actual uh, verbatim from my textbook. Kevin, this is, uh, so it's between Kevin and staff. And Kevin says, what else does she do to get a soda? And the staff said, oh, she's not allowed to have soda. She's on a restricted diet. She asks for sodas all the time. And we tell her that she can't have one. And it is not on her diet plan. Kevin, what does she do when she gets us? In other words, oh, so getting a soda is restricted, which would make its access, you know, limited, right? Or, or actually zero in this case, the dietitian wrote no sodas, all right? So apparently asking for one is not going to work and a whole bunch of other more innocuous forms of behavior don't work. So Kevin said, well, okay, let's make sure that that's the thing she wants. So he asks, well, what does she do when she gets a soda? And the staff say, oh, she guzzle, guzzles it down, belches and smiles. Hence, the solution to this problem was to figure out what is driving this behavior of running nude in the, uh, you know, stri stripping down the house and then running off naked. And the answer was, it's the only way to get soda for this girl. And let me uh, just sum this up. The behavior makes sense to the behavior. That's what we live by. And OK, this behaviors we see make sense. So basically, she she wanted access to the soda and she needed to get it through other people because she couldn't get it herself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. In my book, I know that uh, you've read it. Uh, that's yeah. uh, I have various functions that are designed in terms of a category system. And what her classification uh, or our classification of this type of behavior problem is socially mediated access, socially mediated because she has to get the soda through somebody else. I'm sure that if she tried to go to the refrigerator, that would be blocked, right? No, you can't have sodas. So in a sense, this behavior is what we call functional. Again, it makes sense to this adolescent female to do this behavior because it's the only one that will result in getting soda. So prior to the treatment, she was uh, getting sodas two, three times a week because she'd run and that's how they'd get her, all right? What was her level of stripping 
when she was on the treatment. What was the treatment plan? The treatment plan was Kevin went back to the dietician and said, hey, can we give her one soda a week? And probably the reason why soda was restricted was something like, well, she shouldn't have the sugar or some other business. Well, that applies mm-hmm. to everybody, right? <laughs> why are you picking you know, her out for this uh, very onerous plan? So the, you know, the dietician agreed, yeah, we'll give her one can of soda a, a day. And subsequent to that, you might say, well, how well did that work? Perfect. Zero streaking incidents from there on. Plan worked. You mentioned that you have direct access, direct, direct escape, and uh, socially mediated escape. So can you tell us on how you determine which one, one applies to the client or the patient? Sure. So uh, the four functions, and let me break them down for the audience listening, Um, behaviors are maintained or the purpose of behavior, what we call the function, the function of behavior is either getting something or getting out of something. Okay. So getting something I call access functions. That's the term I use in my textbook and try to teach students who read that and other people who attend my workshops, et cetera. Let's call that an access function. It accesses something. Escape is the other one. What is escape? Well, escape is getting away from something. And obviously, you try to get away from something that you don't want to be next to, or it's, I call it aversive. So an aversive situation, you want to escape. And that's relative to people, right? What's aversive to you may not be aversive to me. So that has two levels, right? You either get something, get out of something. Now, the other part of the classification system I have, Sapani Behavioral Classification System, is how the behavior works on the environment. If it goes through somebody, we call it socially mediated. So in terms of access and escape functions, there's socially mediated access functions, which the soda example illustrated, and then socially mediated escape. In other words, you get out of something via the behavior of somebody else. But there's another different level that acts on the physical environment. And that is that the behavioral chain, the things that you do, and immediately in the desired event or outcome. So for example, if I wanted a soda, I could get one, you know, through somebody else. Or if you're not, don't live in this group home, what most of us do when we get a, want a soda is we just get one, right? So that's called direct access. It directly gets some. And then the opposite of that is directly getting out of something. For example, if I wanted to get away from something that was happening in the house, I could either get somebody to terminate that event for me, or I could terminate it myself by leaving. So there's four nice categories. And then all the things that we think of in terms of, is it attention or is it you know, access to a tangible reinforcer? It, is it escape from an unpleasant circumstance? Is it because the instruction that somebody's presented is aversive? All fits into those. If you understand those four basic functions, you can pretty much solve behavior problems. And I call that the holy grail of behavior, understanding those four functions. You get that and you got it. Okay. So once you classify someone's behavior as falling into one of those for functions, how do you determine what approach to do to alleviate that function? Okay, Uh, so there's a number of ways that you can do that and they range from not as efficient to very reliable. At the end of the very reliable um, is an experimental methodology called functional analysis. And that's where behavior analytic personnel do tests 
So for example, if Kevin, Kevin didn't do this one, he was so smart at figuring it out that he didn't need to do that. But it might be if he said, well, we're not sure whether attention is the, you know, uh, maintaining event or the thing that the individual wants. Well, you could run two conditions, right? You could run the behavior gets attention and see what happens to the rate of behavior when you do that. And then in the contrast condition or the contrast test condition, the behavior doesn't result in attention. So if it's attention that's driving the, the behavior, what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see the behavior go up when it gets attention and behavior goes down when it doesn't get attention. So that would be one way to test out. And a guy named Dr. Brian Awada uh, that was at a, several universities in the United States, first at John Hopkins and then University of Florida currently. He developed this in 19, the, the study was published in 82. Um, I don't know when he started working on it in his lab at John Hopkins, but he basically came up with an experimental methodology that now forms the corpus of the literature that is huge and vast in the field of behavior analysis, demonstrating that what's the takeaway for psychologists, behavior is predictable. When you understand how to turn behavior on and off, okay, you can come up with, I know why that's happening. Why? Well, because it gets attention. Oh, what do we do about it? Well, stop giving that attention and give something else attention. Because that's what the individual wants at those particular times. Thank you. So is there any empirical support for your model? Yeah. Uh, decades of research in behavior analysis. The primary behavioral journals have a plethora of studies from, I would say, 1980, late 1980s to current. If you open up one of the issues, you'll see one or several articles that deal with this research methodology on how to do this. I might add that in many cases in applied work, you don't have to go to that. You can do what Kevin Schock did, which is ask a number of questions, do some basic observation. One of the things I teach people is watch what the behavior does in real time. So for example, if the individual engages in oppositional behavior, I'd actually want to go and see what happens when this individual is given an instruction or a command and the individual doesn't follow it. What happens after that? So you actually get to see in real time, oh, first he did this and that didn't work because the adult kept saying, no, you need to clean up your room. And then he did this and that still didn't work. And then he finally did this and the adult walked out of the room and said, I'm done with you. Okay, so the last behavior is the thing that worked. And if that happens over time, you see that that behavior becomes more prevalent when the individual is given a task or command or demand. So there are several ways to do it. Yeah. And can you also define oppositional behavior for someone who oh, might not know? Sure. That so oppositional behavior is where the individual opposes some instruction or demand or command. And it can be very mild in the sense of, I don't want to do that, or do I have mm -hmm. to do that or whatever. But if the individual is heck bent on not doing that and the simple, you know, I, I don't care to do that doesn't work. They engage in more severe oppositional behavior. So it can go all the way from a mild form of verbal noncompliance. You know, I don't want to do that to 
very severe forms. When it gets to that level, uh, it's generally a problem that has um, evolved into something that entails medical necessity. And how is this model different from other models in psychology textbooks? Sure. Well, in most models of psychology, everybody's interested in why. Why does this occur? Why, in other words, we try to explain behavior in terms of why. All right. But most of the traditional approaches, the non-behavioral approaches are, well, uh, this, for example, let's go back to the uh, person who runs down the street naked. It might be that they explain it by a disorder. Well, she has whatever, bipolar disorder, or uh, she has uh, attention deficit disorder, or whatever. Okay. So the disorders explain, I don't think very well, because it's kind of a circular argument. Well, why is she diagnosed with that? Well, because she does this behavior in others. And except for behavioral treatment, it's been, and medication maybe in some of the disorders, uh, that doesn't really help toward, you know, not just edifying the nature of the contextual issues and the problem, but kind of what to do about it. Behavior analysis when you identify the function, you know what to do. This treatment is fairly straightforward. Um, but it's also, you know, well, it's a trait, okay? She has uh, the blank trait. Uh, wh why, why is he oppositional? Well, because he has that type of personality. Again, to me, it's a circular issue. Well, why does she have that? Well, because she does those behaviors. So it doesn't really, in my opinion, help at all. So that's the traditional approach. Again, the behavioral approach is, Find out what the circumstances are surrounding this behavior. What happens before? What happens after? There's the key to figuring it out. Again, it's the holy grail of behavior. Find out what function it serves, and the answer will be fairly straightforward. Not that every case is easy, but you know, when you eventually look at it in that theoretical vein, answers you know, pop up. A lot of our audience is in university or high school. And if you could give one tip to a future parent of a problematic child, what would you say? Oh, well, you know, to boil it down to a simple thing, once you identify the function, and, and in some cases, it, you may need to do a lot of reading before you figure this out. But um, I would say that if you figure it out, you have to be consistent. And many people's understanding of consistent is not quite what's needed. It has to be 80, 90%, 100%. Consistency makes all the difference in the world once you figure out what to do. Great. So thank you, Dr. Supani, for coming on today. Is there anywhere that students can look to find out more about you? You mentioned that you have a book. Yeah. So if they want to find out more information about you know this approach, uh, the behavior analytic approach and my classification system, two things. Most universities have in an ebrary or a print form, uh, the second edition of my book, and some have the third. So if you have access to that, great. If you don't, there is a easier way to get at least the first chapter. And I would recommend that if you are new to the field of understanding behavior from behavior analysis standpoint, read the first 15 pages in the first chapter. So if you go Google search, Amazon has the chapter that you know you can click on. The publishing website, springerpub.com has it as a PDF and there are other places, I'm sure. And so uh, they should have no trouble. And all those are obviously you know, you can get that for free. You have to buy the book, but 
uh, maybe that's something you might ask the university library if they don't have a copy. So thank you for taking the time to meet with me again, Dr. Sipani. And that's it for this week of SciSection. Make sure to check our podcast available on global platforms for our latest interviews.